Section 1 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896. Section 1. THE HOUSE ACROSS THE WAY by Leo Gale When I answered the advertisement of the man in whose employ I am now earning my daily bread, I said that I was a young man, twenty-seven years old, single, experienced in the haberdashery and perfumery lines, willing and obliging, and very desirous of obtaining employment. That was the exact truth, particularly the last part as I was then down to my last ten dollars, without a resource outside of my own humble labors, and not a friend or a single relative in the world to help me, or to put forward one dollar to pay for my room rent, or my modest two and a quarter meals a day, or to buy me the one suit of clothes I usually wore in a year, or the two pairs of shoes, and the few other things which I obtained by laboring steadily from ten to fifteen hours daily, almost three hundred and sixty-five days in the year. So you know what I am. However persistently some of my fellow salesmen may assume the manners and appearance of bankers and bondholders, I personally was, and am, a very humble young man, who knows himself pretty well, and, as a result of a long introspection, has settled down to be everlastingly content with enough to eat, drink, and wear, and a bed to sleep in, with a roof over it. Romance has never had a place in my life, and sentimentalism is a word devoid of any meaning for me. Only when a boy do I remember reading or hearing anything beyond the bare facts of life, daily labor, debts, troubles, and half-filled stomachs, and a few daydreams, not mine, but other young men's. I never thought that I should play a part in, or be witness of, a life drama or tragedy, or ever hear of one, I mean right close up to myself, or see the sequel of one, or anything of that kind. But I did, and when I think of it now, it makes me creep, for what I saw others will some day see, and when it is discovered there will be quite a stir in the papers. The stir may not last long but it will be talked of as a really strange, uncanny sort of thing. And so it is, not absolutely frightful, but just simply very, very strange. Before I obtained the position I at present occupy, I rented a small front hall room in a very quiet, respectable street. This street is situated between two avenues that lie east of 8th Avenue and west of Lexington and is between 23rd and 42nd streets. That is as nearly as I can or will describe it. This street was, as I said, respectable, and so was the house, though the house was the least pretentious in the block. It was a street that has that peculiarity of a great many New York streets. Some houses were old, some were new, some extremely modest, bordering on shabbiness, others quite attractive, of brownstone, and tenanted by people comfortably if not well off. The room of which I was the quiet, silent occupant was one that needs no description to the man or woman who knows anything of city boarding-house life. It was on the third floor, overlooked the street, and was just over the stoop. 
I won't stop to tell everything that was in it, for that is not my purpose here. I came every night and went every morning, at seven o'clock every morning, generally at eight or nine every night. When I got home, I generally stayed right in my room, retiring at ten or eleven regularly. I had no money to spend, and so was, perforce, a very regular, good young man, for I also went to church every Sunday morning and sometimes Sunday night. I used often to gaze out of my window at the people passing by, particularly during the long Sunday afternoons when it was raining or cloudy and everything seemed very quiet, somber, cold, and puritanical. It was not much of an entertainment, but it was all I had. There was one thing, however, that occasionally made my street-gazing interesting, and that was the coming and going of a very smart-looking young man who was, it was reported to us less favored, rumors, the son of the owner of the house just opposite, a man who had made quite a fortune in the produce business, and was now retired. You must understand that we had some quite rich neighbors, for this street, being near a large center, had some solid householders and a few stylish boarding-houses further up the street besides the modest ones of which I was a patron. This young man I speak of was evidently a favored son. He did nothing but go out in the morning at from ten to twelve, and many times I had been awakened by the noisy stopping of his cab at all hours of the night. He was a blood, beyond a doubt, and the envy of many of us who gathered at the dining-table and discussed this young child of fortune's escapades. For some of us came closer to him during odd moments of the day when he perhaps came into some store where one of us was employed, or when we met him face to face, or passed him in a carriage on some of the avenues. Sometimes he had male or female companions, always of the flashy kind. Well, life jogged along for me in the same dull, dry way for some years. I earned the same salary, ate the same sort of food, wore the same sort of clothes, and lived the same sort of life as I had always done and hoped always to do. At some time or other, when I cannot place exactly, the young man disappeared, and in a way that excited no special comment, so did the young man's people. The house was either sold or rented. A new tenant came and opened a boarding-house, failed, and moved out. Another one took it, and in time went away. So also did a third and a fourth. Just then our landlady died, and somehow I moved across the street, right into the very house where the young man had lived, but now so long ago that he was but a memory, and as nearly all his contemporaries in my former quarters had scattered. I never heard him spoken of, nor spoke of him myself. The room which my small income permitted was a hall-room, on the third-floor front, exactly like the one across the street, only just a little bit larger. I settled down in it uneventfully, and so continued to live. The only thing which lent a ray of light to my existence here was the coming of the middle-aged gentleman, and he was a gentleman, who took the small room at the other end of the rather long, narrow hallway, so that when our doors were opened each could see the other sitting in his little den and could engage in conversation, if he cared to talk loudly. But for the sake of the other lodgers we never did, though we exchanged visits frequently on the long winter evenings. This was a good thing for both of us, for he was poor and alone in the world, and so was I, and our acquaintance brought us much mutual entertainment. Our rooms were not elegant, nor was any part of the house. Now it did contain some evidence of former luxury, but such evidence was very scarce and seedy, and fast disappearing. 
Besides the rooms we occupied, there was a closet here and there along the hall, and two large square rooms that were let to richer lodgers, though on account of the narrow stairs and the gloomy aspect that characterized this landing, these more expensive rooms were more often empty than not. Often I sauntered in and out of them, side by side with my fellow lodger, talking of various things. We sat down on the sofas and chairs, and sometimes lighted the gas, for we were quite alone up here, and being quiet never gave any trouble or called forth any reprimands. A great many others came and went in all parts of the house, some staying a week, some a month, some only a few days, but we too were like fixtures, not very profitable, but desirable in a way. Between our two rooms, on one side of the hall, was a closet, just outside of my door, the bolster, then the top step of the staircase, another closet door, and at the end of the hall my friend's room. On the other side of the hall were the doors of the two large rooms, and between them a blank space of wall. Now I know there is nothing very interesting about a third-story landing of an old house, nor anything special to be said about the wall outside of two rooms. But many a time I have walked up and down this hallway on Sunday afternoons or evenings when alone, making no noise and gazing at this wall with its gilt paper, of which I knew every figure and how many figures there were, and at the little skylight overhead, or at the faded red carpet on the floor. I often went into the front room, lighted the gas, and wandered around from object to object, sat first in one chair, then in another, then in the rocker, and lastly pulled the folding bed down simply for something to do, or to speculate how nice it would be to sleep in this bed instead of my own. But I could not conceive of such extravagance for any other than a married man. I would go, also, into the little wash-closet, where there was a basin and running water and a cupboard overhead, or into the clothes-closet just next to it, both doors of which faced the front windows. Then I would go into the other large room, at the other end of the hall, and perhaps do just the same thing. I often borrowed an easy-chair from one of the rooms, but more often I would sit in one of them, preferably the front, and pass whole evenings reading with my back to the window, at ease in the large rocker, and with a light falling over my shoulder onto the book I was reading. Thus my face was towards the two closets at the other side of the room, and as the doors often stood open, I could, and often did, sit gazing at the blank walls, and for lack of anything better to do, often laid down my book and just sat and stared. A blank mind, you will say. That's true. Outside of my daily labors, there was nothing much else in the world for me, or in me for myself. So I found entertainment simply in staring at a blank wall. In my many goings and comings into these two large rooms I had often and often done the same thing. I was, perhaps, in these rooms, either sitting down or talking to my friend as often as three or four nights in seven. He, too, did exactly as I did, stared and stared, or talked, read, or walked, and stared again at the wall of these inside closets. I had often remarked that there were generally doors in such houses connecting the front and rear rooms. I said so to my friend, but he just nodded. Of course it didn't interest him, or me either, very much just then, and people who are idle often say things of no importance. Time passed on in a humdrum way, and while I repeatedly went into the rooms, the temporary occupancy of either or both from time to time quite naturally put more important things uppermost in my mind. 
For a long time, then, the rooms were both occupied. At least it seemed a long time, for nobody cared to stay in them more than a week or a month. While they were let, I had no opportunity to go into them, but simply minded my own business, only calling on my friend and nodding whenever I met the newcomers, who seemed to be men of no very interesting or attractive stamp. At last they went, first one, then the other, and we were again alone on our third-story landing, and able to indulge in the same inexpensive habit of whiling away time in the large rooms. One night, when I was the only one on the floor, and the rain was beating a soft tattoo, sweet to a lonely man, on the roof and skylight, I was taking my favorite promenade from my own room through the hall and into the room of my friend, which I always entered at will. I was stepping out with long strides, my head bowed down between my shoulders, my hands in my pockets, and my shoulders humped high over my chest, in schoolboy fashion, from sheer idleness and laziness. And while I walked back and forth, I was saying to myself, under my breath, La, 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 lum, tum, tum, la, la, um, bum, la, la, lum. I did this two or three times. Quite naturally, I continued, Ah, ah, la, la, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, and so on indefinitely and quite foolishly others have done the same i am sure out of pure listlessness so i went on walking up and down in and out of the two small rooms and the two large rooms thinking of nothing and now and then counting from one up to twenty or any number till my fancy commenced again on lum lum tum one of these trips i began to count one two three four and so forth still out of pure idleness and not with any intention of pacing off the depth of the house which however i did unwittingly starting from the window of my room i counted twenty-two to the window of the small rear room at the time i made but slight note of this but on going back i noticed that i counted again up to twenty-two exactly that was as far as it went i counted twenty-two from front to rear wall of the house that was all then, after a little while, I went to bed. Some other matters coming up, I was not again at liberty to do any more pacing off or other idle nonsense for a week or more. Then, as I happened to think of measuring off the two large rooms in order to compare their size with my own, I paced from the front window of the front square room to the closet doors. I measured first six paces, then going back seven, then once more I made it six and a half, and at last about eight regular paces of two and a half feet long. Now, I cannot be sure as to these little details, as I was not doing it with any purpose, but only for pastime. After measuring off my own room, I went back to the large rear room and measured that. I was becoming interested. I counted eight paces. Eight? Yes, eight. No, it couldn't be. I tried again. Seven? Seven and a half? Seven? Then eight? Then eight again? I knew it must be about eight, at all events. Eight and eight were sixteen. I saw that this disparity was absurd, but presently it occurred to me that the wash-closet accounted for the very apparent difference. Only the closet, which I had not taken into account, could not be more than one pace in depth, making seventeen, and I had counted twenty-two that night in the hall, but perhaps I had taken larger steps to-night. I determined to try again. Once more I paced off the hall. Twenty-two. Naturally, I was very much perplexed, 
but as I was not of a very deep or romantic nature, nothing suggested itself to my mind except that the architect who had planned this house, perhaps twenty-five or more years before, had made some strange calculations and wasted much valuable space between two rooms. That night I certainly did not think of one thing that was not perfectly commonplace and sensible. It turned out, however, that I often thought of this problem on the many subsequent occasions when sitting in that front room, and one night, when my usually slow mind was troubled with some unusually fanciful notions concerning the black space of at least ten feet between these two rooms, I decided to bring home a long builder's tape measure from the store the next evening. For what purpose or with what end in view, I did not stop to analyze. I was just curious and mystified. The next night I somehow got upstairs with alacrity, and as luckily no one was around, I fell to at once and began measuring off the front room from the front windows to the closet doors. The exact depth to the door sill was twenty-one feet six inches, and from the door sill of the wash closet to the wall a little under two feet. Then I went into the rear room and found that the depth from the window to the wall was nearly nineteen feet. I next went out into the hall, and again opening both doors, found the depth of the house from the inside to be about fifty-four feet. Here it seemed to me that I must be mistaken. I could not understand the curious disparity. My head seemed to be made of wood. Had I been quick-witted, I should at once have seen that, allowing for all sorts of thick and thin partitions, there were at least ten or eleven feet unaccounted for between the front and rear rooms of this third-story landing. As it was, nothing of the sort suggested itself to my mind. Indeed, I had done well to get as far as I did, considering that I had not started out with any strange ideas or with the hope of unearthing any mystery. For a long time I stood in the hallway, holding the tape in my hand, biting my lip, and trying to think what it all could mean. Certainly there was something out of the way. Even supposing that I was quite mistaken in some of my measurements, in consequence of general inability to do more than a few things well, I could not have been more than two or three feet astray. But what that something was, it was quite beyond me to imagine though I did put my hand on the wall and look up and down and feel it from end to end, but rather aimlessly and with a sort of stupid wonder. What's in there? I asked myself, but I got no answer. Mine was not a fertile brain. So barren was it that I did not at the time feel the least sensation beyond a dull curiosity and perplexity. After wandering round a bit without much purpose and attempting to read a book, I went into my room shut the door, and sat down and fell asleep in my chair. About this time my friend in the back room was often obliged to work late nights at his place of business, and in consequence I was left alone more than usual. Had it not been for this, I should probably never have done much thinking regarding the matter of the queer measurements of this floor and its spaces, apparent and invisible. But often, when I sat alone in the large front room, looking into the closet at the blank wall, I would think, what's there? Who built such a funny house? And can it be a large well-hole that takes up so much of this unexplained space? I thought over these things something like five nights during which the subject forced itself on my mind with growing persistency before it occurred to me to go up on the roof and see. This I did, 
forcing and fighting my way up through an ill-smelling black cobwebby scuttle that had probably not been opened in the memory of the lessee of the house fearful of making a noise a little bit scared by the lonesomeness of my situation and not knowing either what i might come face to face with on my way at last i succeeded in prying the scuttle cover up and not very spryly got out on the old gravel roof the night was black for a few moments i could not see an inch before me but as my eyes became used to the darkness the bare outlines of things were visible, and I groped my way to where I thought the room should lie. Then, getting down upon my hands and knees, I crept from front to rear wall, feeling every foot of the way, lest I should plunge down into some terrible place from which there would be no escape. I went along slowly, feeling quite vexed with myself for having forgotten even a match, but I found nothing but a straight, plain roof. That is to say, my hand found nothing for I could barely see. Accordingly, I wasted little time on the roof, but soon returned to my room, quite chilled, and feeling that I had very nearly made a fool of myself. So I concluded to put the matter from my mind once and for all. For two weeks I succeeded. Then I began to think of it again, at first a little bit, then more and more, till out of business hours I could think of nothing else. Finally, I concluded that as I could not walk through the wall at will to investigate, the best thing I could do was to go up on the roof again with a lantern, and examine its surface once more, this time carefully. I felt loath to spend any money on a lantern, but after a day of stubbornness finally gave in, and one night brought one home. That night, however, my friend was at home though in answer to my somewhat impatient inquiry he said that he should spend the next evening at his place of business on the following evening i was at the foot of the ladder leading to the roof at eight o'clock or as soon as it was dark i might have waited for sunday to come but as that was five days off and as my friend would be at home to ask questions all that day i had made up my mind to try now or not at all so i went up opened the cover this time a little more easily and crawled out on the pebbles that covered the entire roof i then lighted my lantern which was what is called a dark lantern and illuminated only such spots as i wished to examine and dropped upon my hands and knees as before i began at the front creeping along slowly but knowing that ten minutes at most would suffice me i did not fear being discovered and as i was quite eager to see what i myself might discover i was lost to all other things and went on slowly and carefully i remember that when i judged i must be over that dark empty space below something like a thrill ran through me at the thought of what might be underneath and then when suddenly my hand ran against an obstruction i thrilled again with the thought that at last i had found a clue to the mystery it was a rim of wood which might readily be passed over if not looked at closely and it extended around with square corners like nothing so much as the sheathing at the sides of a scuttle-hole which overtops the roof generally by an inch or so had there been a scuttle-hole here and to what did it lead what did it ventilate but i could not be sure that there had been a scuttle-hole only the outline of the hole was there still Roofers do not usually put four strips of wood meeting at right angles in any part of a gravel roof to amuse themselves. I began to think of things with a facility that surprised me, and spoke of a latent pertinacity of which I had always myself been ignorant. 
but however much i might speculate on the why and the wherefore of what i had found it was no explanation and would have amounted to nothing if the theory of the scuttle-hole had not presented itself in spite of a careful search i found nothing else and after a little while went down fortunately no one was a witness to my ascent or descent after that i could not get the matter out of my thoughts with that newly awakened hunger for the unusual which sometimes comes to a man whose life has been woefully void of incident i began to feast upon speculations and imaginings a truly childish pastime i know but i never was a great man and so i kept thinking of it night after night alone or sitting with my friend in his room talking of little things or discussing things in the papers like little people who have nothing to do with big events i couldn't read now at all whenever i made the attempt at my old place my back to the light that burned right by the window of the empty room and my face toward the open closets invariably my eyes would rest on the wall and for whole minutes i would thus sit without uttering a word my companion remarked this once or twice and looked at me curiously but he had no notion of my thoughts as i never spoke about the matter to him it did not occur to me for a long while indeed it did not seem possible until i had thought it over and over and over to destroy another's property at first seemed unpardonable but i did at last determine to make a hole in the wall now you must know that up to that time i had no reason for thinking that the state of affairs which i had discovered was different from that which might exist in any old house or in any of the houses in this row for which reason it can easily be understood that a man of my nature unresourceful and inclined to hold back in anything savoring of an enterprise might move slowly in such a matter had i had anything else to do or think of at the time i certainly should never have made another move in the matter but i did at last reach the point where i resolved to make a hole in the wall first only a long very narrow one such as i could make with a long bell-hanger's gimlet which had been left lying in the cellar under the store where i was employed then i could make another or three or four and if i found nothing then i did not know what i might do i did not even form the least idea of what i might find i did however procure the gimlet at once and at the first opportunity set to work at night when i commenced to bore i had never once thought of seeing anything more than a few pieces of plaster drop or of meeting anything except some hard obstruction such as a joist or brick i did see the plaster drop and so much more than i had calculated that had it been out in the room itself i should have stopped at once but as the little closet was dark i felt that a hole even two or three inches wide would not hurt anything and so kept on how far i should have to go in i could not tell at first only the plaster fell then i struck something that seemed to be a lathe but which i got through easily my gimlet plunged forward without meeting anything and stopped i had still about six inches of it to spare and began to turn i seemed to be boring into wood though i was not certain and kept on twisting round and round when suddenly the gimlet plunged in again and i knew i had passed through something more i drew it out slowly and without any skill but i only heard some scraps of plaster fall inside and was no wiser than before then for about five minutes i rested disappointed but somehow half relieved at finding a plain matter-of-fact honest wall 
I did not know whether to go on or not. Should I continue my foolish quest, I asked myself, or should I go away and cease to destroy the property of others? I did not much care then what I did, but after a while I decided to make just one more little hole beside the other, or about half an inch away from it, and then, if I found I was only making a fool of myself, to give the whole thing up, tell no one about it, and forget it altogether. As I made this second hole, I saw that the plaster fell out quite plentifully till the two holes were about united. It seemed, too, from the way the gimlet acted, as if I had just struck about or near to the hole I had previously made in the lath within. Had I been calculating to enlarge the hole quickly, I could not have done it better. But as the gimlet filled up most of the space, I could only guess at the path it was making through whatever was within, though I fancied that it was penetrating just the same substance as it had before. When it had gone its entire length, and I started to pull it back, I found it was stuck in something, and so moved it about violently, jerking and twisting it impatiently to get it out. At the same time I heard much plaster fall, and a creaking and scraping, as when rats run up and down wildly inside the walls. At last I jerked the gimlet out, and it fell to the floor with a loud clang, for I had dropped it in the first thoughtless impulse of profound amazement. There, right in front of my eyes, streaming out into the darkness of this little closet, was a thin but steady ray of light, just like a bar of gold, distinct and as unmistakably a fact as my own existence. I could only stand gazing at it as rigid as a corpse, for I was incapable of motion. It was there. I saw it, a steady, clear ray of light. From where did it come? I did not know. I was lost to everything but that one fact, that a light was streaming out into the closet from a place which no one knew existed. Then I came to myself with a shudder, and, after making at least twenty attempts, and as often falling back with fear, I brought myself up to the hole and looked within. At the first moment I started back, my hands flung backward up over my head in an attitude of extreme terror. My face must at that moment have been absolutely livid. A thrill of intense and sickening horror tingled at the roots of my hair, till it seemed as if it stood up on my head, and at the same time I felt as if an electric shock ran down my spine through my whole body, rooting me like iron to the floor. I felt my eyes bulging from their sockets. I could not at that moment have moved for all the wealth of the world, and if my tongue had not been paralyzed like my entire body, I should have shrieked madly. For within the brilliantly lighted room on which I looked, in a large armchair close by the table, there sat, rigid and white and terrible, a man whose black open and staring eyes were fixed directly on me with horrible intensity. By his side, on a table, lay a shining pistol, and on his forehead was a spot of blood that told the tale of self-destruction. At that moment one thought, one mad desire, to be away from that spot, anywhere so that I might escape from the awful situation into which my curiosity had led me, came to me with such force as to sicken me. Had I been able to move hand or foot, I should have fled away, out of the house, to escape those staring, lifelike eyes of this corpse, with which I was alone in this silent, gloomy place, with only a partition between us, but no bar to save me from the silent, deadly horror that came through the opening I had rashly made. 
the opening that once seemed so narrow but now all too wide, while we gazed, one at the other, the awful dead and I, the rigidness that terror lent to me at last gave way, and I fell prone to the floor, unconscious. At length I came to, slowly, but not with any feeling of courage. There was the light above my head, and I knew that within I scrambled up and half walked, half stumbled out of the room and closed the door after me. Then I seized my hat and coat, and, with only one side glance at the innocent-looking wall in the hallway, left the house and hurried out to the street. Here a feeling of relief came to me with the presence of my fellow men, and with the noises and lights and the busy rush of life. How glad I felt to be alive, here, out in the open streets, where everyone was happy in the fact of being alive. Yet even now I shuddered when I thought of that light, and that inner room which no one had dreamed of, and of its ghastly tenant, dead in the midst of life, alone in his strange mausoleum. But I had to return. Only I decided to wait for my friend, as I should not dare to even go up to my own room alone. So I went back to the street where I lived, and walked up and down from one avenue to another till he should come. I had a long wait, but he came at last, and together we went upstairs. He went into his room, and I followed him and took a seat. The usual greetings were passed, and the same inquiries as to the day's business on his part or mine. I sat silent, and with difficulty repressed shivers of fear. I wondered what he would say if he knew what lay so near him. I could not tell him then, not at once. I was trembling too much, though I controlled it enough to escape notice. I let him talk on in his pleasant, courteous way. So far I did not know what I should do. I was resolved not to go back into that room again alone, and I knew that I could not go into my own room and sleep. I was on the point of asking him to let me sleep that night with him, but what sense I had left told me that such a request would seem to him ridiculous. But what was I to do? Why not tell him? I was not going to patch up the wall again and leave the mystery within forever. My queer way and occasional shiver, and the expression that must have been in my eyes, at last caused him to ask me if I were not well. He noticed my pale face and mentioned it. I could only stare at him. The horror of it all seemed again to come over me. My teeth chattered. I had jumped up from my chair, but he forced me into it again, asking me if he could do anything for me. For, Mr. Jones, he said, you look like a very sick man. I am sick, I said. Oh, heaven, if you... That was all I could get out then, and I sat silent for some moments, while he, his name was Fleming, was too polite to ask further as to a matter which I must have appeared to him desirous of saying nothing about. He did not know that I was simply overcome and almost too weak to talk. At last, however, I fully made up my mind, and, gathering all the strength I could, in broken, disconnected sentences, I told him all, or not all, but at least the outline of the thing. He simply sat still and stiff in his chair. When I had finished, he said not a word, but just sat as still as ever, looking at me in silence, till his eyes seemed so like those others that I sprang up, crying, Don't, don't look at me that way. I can't stand it. I'm not a brave young man. You look like, like him. He at least was braver than I. Recovering himself, he got up, and putting his hand on my shoulder, said, Jones, it is all strange, very strange, but possible. It is one of those things that happen now and then. Come, let us look. 
I want to see for myself. Then, when we come back here, I'll tell you what I know about it. What you know? I stammered, almost shrieked. Yes, what I know, he answered. Come on, I'll make it all clear. Only, he added, I did not know as much about this as you have accidentally found out. For the present, come and let us see what is to be seen. It is only a dead man, under rather unusual circumstances, to be sure, but it is only the circumstances that give horror to it. The fact itself is simple enough. Suicide? Yes, that is bad, but come. How I trembled, even with him, and he seemed so strong and fearless. I had not got over the shock yet. We went into the front room. The light was yet burning, as I had left it, and there the same narrow stream of light was falling through the hole I had made, cutting through the shadow of the closet. I watched him as he stood face to face with the hole in the wall, while he stopped about two feet away from it for a few moments, but he waited only a short time before putting his eye to the hole. As he did so, I saw a shudder pass through him, and noticed that he clenched his hands. I also heard his teeth meet, and heard him say to himself, Yes, it is too true. It is Albert. It is hard to describe the effect these words produced on me, implying, as they did, a knowledge of things on my friend's part of which I had never even faintly dreamed. They relieved me a great deal, too, and for the first time I began to feel coming into my mind a practical realization of the entire circumstance. That is to say, as far as it related to the fact of a dead man being here before us and nothing more unnatural. But I did not cease to realize and to feel the awful strangeness of his death and the situation in which we found him, closed in this inner secret room, more solemn than a tomb within a few feet of living men and unknown to all the world. My companion must have stood motionless, his gaze fixed, fascinated on the things he saw through that hole for a long time. It gave me a chance to assume a little courage, so that by the time he moved back I was ready to look a second, this time to note all those other things which I had overlooked in my first great fear. But however strong I had thought myself, I was speechless and involuntarily started back on beholding those intently fixed eyes which again penetrated me, and at seeing that awful death's head, straight and erect above the rigid body, beneath it the white shirt bosom, for the figure was clad in full evening dress, and glistening on one finger a large and brilliant diamond, which seemed to me but to add to the gruesomeness of the picture. The first shock over, I looked around the room as much as the size of the hole would allow, or a space of about five square feet. In the center was the silent corpse, which had sat there. For how long? Who could say? By his side was a table, and on it the shining weapon which had done the work of destruction. One hand rested on the knees, the other hung by the side of the chair. I could see the foot of a bed, and also the end or side of a splendid counterpane. Also I could catch a sight of a rich carpet at the far corner of the room, and part of a walnut dresser. And strangest of all, above the head of the man, the gas burned brightly and steadily, with just that little occasional flicker when the air passes through it out of the pipe. It was so strange, so passing strange, that I too looked and looked, not able to move away from the secrets of this hidden room which fate had given up with its awful tenant once more to the sight of men. When I did draw away, after turning again and again to take a last look, we both gazed at each other a long while without speaking. What could we say? 
astonishment was still in possession of our senses and what words were to follow between us had not yet come to our lips silently we again looked first one then the other then again and again while the stillness was unbroken by the least sound throughout the house only the corpse sat there while the gas burned over his head and we at the other side of the little hole in the wall stared repeatedly at the man within as long as we could endure the fixed regard of his eyes at last we both moved away but my friend bethinking himself that others might discover the mystery went back i saw him take up some pieces of plaster and after wetting them in the wash closet just by place them again in the hole he then went into his own room i following closely after and brought back with him a bottle of mucilage with this he fixed and patched the broken wallpaper over the crack again using some pieces of matches to fill the chinks in the plaster till the hole was entirely closed up and concealed this is only temporary he said to me to-morrow i am going to close this up better and i am going to hire this room before i leave the house in the morning and lock the door after me no one must know but you and i now will you come into my room i want to tell you something if he had thought i meant to leave him for an instant that night he was mistaken i meant to stay with him on some pretext or other till morning when i could think of some plan of being with him or some companion every night or of getting out of the house entirely i did think this last idea the best and was already planning how to escape the result of what i had brought on myself meantime i went with him to his room after he had locked the door of the large front room putting the key in his pocket and after i had closed the door of my own room i certainly intended to cling to him closely and so after sitting down i shut the door at his request and looked at him he took his time however though i could see his face was white i think he was trying to gather himself together because his hand shook and his face wore a very grave expression and he walked back and forth a few steps for some moments nervously at last he sat down and looking straight at me said i know that young man in there his name is or was albert clements his father once owned this house and lived here with his wife and that boy there were no others the other children having died a light had been stealing upon me the memory of a face i once knew so well from seeing it so often came before me heavens i exclaimed i knew him too at least by sight why it's a great deal more than five years ago it's nearer ten when i lived across the street and used to see him go in and out of this house we all knew him we young fellows who boarded over there can it be possible it may be my friend answered indeed you are right he did live here about that time but you you i cried who are you or in what way were you connected with this tragedy i he replied had no connection with this suicide at all i was in fact a sufferer too from the circumstances that led up to it i am going to tell you the whole story from the beginning to commence with i was the partner in business with this young man's father i knew him well not only in a business way but as a friend for we had grown up as boys together in the office of a produce broker a good many years ago pardon me if i grow reminiscent but i can't help looking back to those days long ago when charlie clements and i were happy careless boys and now but we grew to manhood and started in business together we prospered till we were both quite well to do 
During the days of the Civil War, when we had barely begun, we made a great deal of money. Our house continued in business for many years. You must know that I am not a young man, nor even a middle-aged one. I am getting old now, though a good constitution is helping me to keep off actual infirmities. Well, when Charlie Clements married, it was to the girl we both loved. That is the reason I never married myself. But I remained his friend, and he mine, and time passed. They had three children, but two died, and only the youngest, Albert, I saw him shudder, and his eyes moved towards where that man must have been sitting then. Only Albert was left. Then they came to this house at about the time Albert left college. The boy didn't go to work. He had evidently learned too much of the softer side of life, and his father, as some men will do who have had to work hard themselves, seemed never to make up his mind to compel his son to earn his living. It was a fatal weakness. The boy grew willful and wild. What is the use of multiplying words? In time he became uncontrollable. It took perhaps five or six years to make him an utterly worthless, luxurious man about town, a rich man's son, whose father paid all his bills. There were some very heavy ones, too. His parents idolized him, and so, no matter what he did, his father backed him up. I knew nothing of it, not then. Business seemed to go along the same as ever, though I did notice that my partner was getting old very fast. That, though, I thought was but the effects of a lifetime of overwork. Had I known what was taking place, I might have stopped it, or made the attempt, at least, or I might have protected my own capital, at all events. I could not imagine that my partner was using the firm's money, but he did come to do that in time, for his own was all gone. You see, his son spent so much that the old man went into Wall Street to recoup, but he only lost still more, with the result that he had nothing left of his own, and he had to have money in one way or another. I don't believe he ever meant to misuse mine, only we had been so long together he must have come to regard everything in the business as our common property. Besides, he was getting old. Care was making inroads in his mental health as well, and he must have been desperate. Anyhow, he was drawing a lot of money constantly, and I never suspected that we were coming near to a crash as I, well, I have to blame myself too. A man should be alive to things, and I was not. It happens often today, and will happen often again. Well, after Albert Clements had gone on in this way for a number of years, he met a woman, one of those creatures for whom a man would go through the plagues of hell. You might expect that a man who had for years been accustomed to the society of women would be proof against the wiles of a creature whose charms, perhaps, lay in a brighter eye than the rest, or a redder mouth, or a quicker wit. The French people call it diable à coeur. This woman certainly had it. I saw her once, only once. She was certainly beautiful, but the young man, having come under her influence, was beyond redemption. His excesses had been mild before compared to his habits now, and excesses, I believe, lead to insanity. Plain, unmistakable madness. I am sure Albert Clements had become insane. To have reasoned with him now would have been utterly futile. He was lost to shame, honor, decency, everything. And so his poor father and invalid mother, after they had spent a fortune in paying his debts, were threatened with absolute beggary. Our business went under. I, too, was a poor man. 
Clements begged me on his knees to forgive him, and his wife nearly went mad before my eyes on that occasion. The boy, he was not at home, had been away with that woman for a week. They couldn't tell where he was. As for me, what could I do, or of what use was it to reproach this poor old dotard, the friend of my youth? I forbore, too, for his wife's sake, and that day I left their house, this house, with only a few dollars in my pocket and my good name gone forever. Somehow, all the sense and reason in my nature, and also all the good, all the godliness in me, must have come to my aid then, for I braced up wonderfully, and went to work for ten dollars a week. I remember knowing a man who lost in one day one hundred thousand dollars in speculation. He is as happy today as a poor man as he ever was in affluence. Well, I lost sight of Clements for a few months, and what followed in this house I did not know, till one day he sent for me and told me what had taken place, and what you and I have looked upon tonight. It seems the son had that room fitted up from some whim, as it was a dark inside room with no windows and only a small scuttle to ventilate it. I had been in it only once, by chance, and so knew nothing of its situation. He used to come here to sleep, as he said it was a room to which no sound penetrated. This I did not know till Clements told me when he sent for me after we had parted, and up to tonight I did not know positively that it was this room he meant, as he did not describe it accurately, and from my having been in it only once before for a moment I did not fix it in my mind. However, my former partner sent for me, as I said, he was nearly gone. He had left this house and moved to a dingy little place far uptown, on the extreme west side. I found him lying on his bed, and knew he had not long to live. When I had seen him last he looked like an old, broken-down man, but now he was literally drawing his last few breaths. His wife was dead, killed by the shock of her son's suicide. The young man, so Clements told me brokenly, had gone to this room after coming home at the end of that week when I had last been in the house. It was about three o'clock when he came in. He heard the story of the ruin he had caused. He saw what he had done. So, going to his room, without stopping to take his hat off, he deliberately shot himself dead. Horrible? Yes, it was. But it was Nemesis. I will not say he deserved his fate. I do not think any man deserves such an end. But he had brought it on himself. The old man, I suppose, was horror-stricken, and his mind gave way when his wife, rushing upstairs, opened the door, looked in, saw what, what we saw tonight, and fell dead on the door-sill. You may well say, horrible, now. He stopped. His eyes were full of tears. His whole body shook, and his head hung forward on his breast. After a while he went on. Clements must have been nearly maddened then. Surely he had become crazy. It was easy to understand. When I saw him, and while he was telling me this awful tale, he was certainly more mad than any madman I have ever seen. But he was a weak, powerless one. Only his mind was gone, and I knew so, too, his life would soon be gone. He told me all, though, but he did not say in what room the young man had killed himself. He just said, in that room. Joe, he cried, clutching my arm. I buried her, my wife. But him... I walled him up. I buried him right there. And there he is now. Joe, do you hear? At the last trumpet call, he'll wake and know once more what he has done, for he'll see the pistol, and look in the mirror, and see the hole in his head, and he'll see the clothes he wore that night, 
and he'll know it all. He's there yet, and there he'll remain till the end. No one knows. You won't tell, Joe, will you? No, no, not you. He wronged you, too. Do you forgive him, Joe? I don't. No, no. Joe, Joe, I say, friend, Joe. It was all he said. Charlie Clements was dead. For at least a quarter of an hour I made no sound. I saw my friend bury his head in his arm, and heard him sob like a man who lived over again the saddest moment of his life. This man who was alone in the world, with only the past to look back upon, whose history had been such a sad one, now, at the recollection of these strange and sad events, wept, and I myself felt the hot tears course down my face and turn my head away. I heard the little clock tick, and a door slam somewhere below. But here there was silence. I could not speak a word. At last he spoke again. Excuse me, Mr. Jones, he said. It is too much for my composure, this going over these times once more. I cannot show you with half-vividness enough these things as they really took place. To me, of course, nothing else can ever stand out so distinctly. However, I will finish my story. After burying my poor friend and learning that he had absolutely nothing left in the world, not even the small equity in this house which I had thought he had retained through everything, I went back to work. There was not very much for me in life, but I had fully decided on my course, having fought and conquered that battle with myself which all men who have had my experience must fight. And so I took up my life again, and bleak and barren as it was, I have been living it ever since, sometimes very poor, never with more than enough. Often I thought of the suicide, but not with the idea of taking any steps to learn where his body was. Finally, however, after some years, I did decide to come here and engage board, not exactly with the purpose of searching for him, as I could not tell but what, in making some alterations, they had found his skeleton, though I always searched the papers every day and never saw any account of it. But in a vague way, I felt interested enough to come here. My idea was to hire every room, successively, as it became vacant, and as my means permitted. Though, had I found what I was thinking of, I do not know whether I should have made it known, and do not know either if I shall do so now. And I, I exclaimed, shall do nothing at all. I leave it all to you, though I think it best for us to remain silent. What good can it do? I have no desire to gain notoriety, or perhaps get into trouble, if only for a short time. It might cost me my position, and I am poor. Do you think I am selfish? Well, I know what three meals a day and a living mean, and I know the other side of the picture, too. I have experienced both. My friend gazed at me for a moment. Perhaps you are right. I will see, he said. At all events, I am going to take some time to think it over. I have discovered what I had in view so long, though before I expected it, and in a way I did not calculate on. It did not occur to me that there was a room unaccounted for on this landing. How did you find it out? In the simplest way, I replied, and then gave an account of the chance by which I had discovered the disparity existing between the measurements of the hallway and the two large rooms, and the length to which my curiosity had led me. Had I known what I was about to look upon when I made those holes, I concluded, nothing could have induced me to do it. When I did see it, well, I don't mind telling you, I fainted. Those eyes! Heavens! How they came to be fixed exactly on the spot where I broke through, I don't know, but I couldn't stand it. 
I just rushed out and waited for you. If you hadn't come, I certainly would not have come up here again. Oh, it is horrible. As I finished, I put my hands up to my eyes, as if to shut the dreadful sight out from my vision, but in vain. I can see it now as plainly as the first time that night. I always shall. It certainly is a marvelous occurrence, Mr. Fleming said. I cannot, though, account for the gas burning all this time. I suppose the boy's father left it burning, so that at whatever moment the trumpet should sound, he could see himself as at the time of his death. And, I said, I suppose the room being air-tight, the body has been preserved. But, said my friend, a light cannot burn without air. Only, I presume, just air enough got in, some way, to permit of the existence of the flame, but not enough to corrupt the body, only just sufficient to dry the skin, and in a way mummify the corpse. Ah, it is strange. And when I look back, he did not finish, but became silent in thought. We had said all that was to be said, and now could only think in silence of this weird life story and its astonishing sequel. All that night we remained together, sitting in my friend's room talking in our chairs. The next day Mr. Fleming took the large room. In fact, we both took it, for I have found a lifelong friend in him whose fate was joined to mine in so peculiar a way. Long since we moved out of that house, having removed every sign of the whole which had disclosed so much to us. But the discovery of the unknown and unsuspected mystery we leave to time and other men, for my friend will not undo the work or defy the wishes of the friend of his boyhood. And I, I am content. End of section one. Recording by Narrator Jay.